Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, I'm going to be talking about learning loss, Queen Elizabeth's death, the Chile Constitution, and the Trump FBI raid. I will start this week uh, with the biggest news. Obviously, uh, Queen Elizabeth II died. Uh, She was 96 years old, and she was the longest reigning monarch in in England uh, history. She reigned 70 years. Her reign started in 1952 and lasted until, obviously, 2022 this year. As I mentioned, she was the longest uh, in United Kingdom history and the second longest monarch in European history, the first being Louis XIV of France, who reigned from uh, who reigned 72 years. Uh, that was cheating a little bit because I believe Louis was like seven years old when he became a king. But nonetheless, a second reigning isn't too bad. Uh, and taking over uh, as the new monarch of the United Kingdom is going to be, or is already, King Charles III, uh, the first two Charles coming in the 1600s for England there. Um, well, I mean, what a, just a, an incredible life. Uh, a, a always, uh, uh, one of the kind of well-known uh, questions that people ask, uh, kind of an icebreaker question, but just an interesting question nonetheless is, you know, if, if you could have coffee with one person, uh, dead or alive, who would it be? And for my alive person, uh, for, you know, the last few years, I've always said, uh, you know, it's a hard question for me to answer, but uh, one of the people that I always throw out there is Queen Elizabeth. And it's not necessarily because I'm fascinated by the monarchy in England. Uh, I'm not a royal family watcher like I know many people in the United States are. I don't really find the royal family or the English monarch that interesting, to be honest. Um, But the reason why I would love to... Um, have uh, you know had coffee with her? Why that she was the person I always said is because, you know, she lived first of all just age right to talk to anyone that was ninety six years old that lived through things like uh, World War Two, uh, the Cold War that lived through um, the different leaders uh, and just all the historical events. I mean, she was alive during the Great Depression. Just, you know, all of that uh, that comes with, you know, being 96 years old. So that's one reason. But the other is just how unique her life was. Uh, it, you know, she's the Queen of England. There's one Queen of England. Uh, there's no one else in the world who has lived a life like hers. It is just pure and simply unique. And so because of her age, because of just her unique position, uh, she's been able to meet some of the most historical people in world history. Uh, She met, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, every UK prime minister. She met, uh, of the 14 presidents uh, during her reign, she met 13 of them, with uh, LBJ being the only one that she didn't meet. Uh, She's met the Beatles. She's met uh, Elton John. I mean, she has met everybody that there is to meet, um... Uh, anyone that's famous for the last, uh, you know, 70 years. And so the stories that she could tell, uh, you know, that's that's why I always, you know, wanted to, I, that's why I always threw her name out there as someone that I want to get coffee with because uh, just the stories of those people that she could tell, the stories of what she's experienced in her life that would be unlike any others, and then just pure and simply, you know, what is it like to be the queen? What is it like to grow up? And I guess her situation is a little different, but, because you know it wasn't certain that she was going to be queen. In fact, it, you know, it was she wasn't supposed to be queen? But you know, what is it like to be a royal? What is it like to be queen? What is it like to have people waiting on you all the time? What's it like uh, to have that much money and to be uh, well known, one of the most well known figures in the entire world? 
um, you know, just a, a wild life in just pure and simply age and, and a position. And, um, you know, I, I, I wrote about this a little bit. One thing that is remarkable about Queen Elizabeth is, and something that I think is, is really admirable, is how she didn't let the uh, institution of the monarch, the English monarchy, be a platform to uh, promote herself. So Yuval Levin, who's a, a scholar uh, in, works for American Enterprise Institute in the United States, he has written a lot about institutions. And one of the things that he's written about is the lack of faith that we now as Americans have in our institutions. And he points to uh, the the reason being because people... Uh, Instead of you allowing uh, institutions to shape us, so he argues that institutions, uh, and institutions he defines as you know th- th- things that people, uh, the the realms in which people operate within and relate to one another, and so instead of rathing, uh, letting uh, institutions form individuals, uh, individuals have turned institutions into platforms to promote themselves, and his main example is uh, Congress. So he points to a lot of politicians. I mean, think about how many politicians there are now that instead of getting, they'll run, and instead of getting to uh, Congress and becoming a representative or a Senate, a senator, they will um, take that time. They, they will not change at all. They will stay who they are. And not, you know, I'm not saying like they become a whole different person, but, you know, with that new position, you would think that a new profound a responsibility would be felt, uh, a weight would be felt because, you know, you are one of the most powerful people in the entire world. And you have, that is a weighty responsibility. So, and not only that, but, you know, there have been, you know, generations of men and women who have walked the hall, those halls and sat in those seats and been in those positions. And you are, you know, walking into that legacy. So rather than, you know, feeling that weight and, and, and that, uh, that uh, history and allowing that to change how you behave, uh, people now will go to Congress and then instead of actually being a congressperson, they will go on Fox News or MSNBC and give interviews because they're a congressman and they know they can get airtime. Um, you know, so prime example of this was Madison Cawthorn. I know he just got voted out, but you know, it was a he. At one point, he he made it, he emailed everyone, uh, his colleagues, and said that he was investing his budget on communications people, not policy people, because his position as representative was about promoting himself. You know, that's why he was in it. It was not to get policy done, which is the role of a politician. And so when that happens, Levin's argument is, is we lose faith in the institutions themselves because they're no longer serving their purpose of shaping and forming people into the kind of person that we want them to be, that builds trust in not just that person, but in the institution as a whole. And one thing about Queen Elizabeth II is that she never used the monarchy and her the institution of the monarchy to as a platform to promote herself she was consistently and I, and, and I, I you know I again I wasn't a, I'm not a close watcher of the throne I haven't dug into her history so I'm sure she wasn't perfect in this you know but consistently her life was one of 
uh, sacrificing for the institution of the monarchy. Uh, she never gave interviews. I mean, think about that. You are the most, one of the, if not the most famous person in the entire world. You could get an, you know, people will cling to every word you say. And uh, you could get an in, uh, interview with anyone at any time you want. And she never gave an interview. And she gave she gave one quote unquote interview, and she made sure that the person interviewing her was first of all he asked for something crazy like twenty two years before she finally uh, agreed, and she made clear to him that it needed to be a conversation. Uh, so they were talking, not uh, the inter not her, the interviewer asking her questions and her answering. So. In 70 years, she basically gave one interview, and even that wasn't really an interview. Um, that's that's remarkable, right? And that takes e e enormous amount of sacrifice because, again, she was human. Yeah, she was the queen, and she had everything she could ever want, so to speak. But, you know, it's got to be very stultifying for a, an individual to uh, be have all these expectations on you, to have all of these uh, people telling you what you can and can't do or the expectations of what you can and can't do. And so it's got to be incredibly... Um, constraining sometimes and we see that with you know some of you know like Megan and uh, uh, Harry they you know it was too much and so they 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 left and yet she never gave into that temptation to make it about herself it was all about the institution of the monarchy it was about what was good for the the monarchy and not what was good for Elizabeth and and that's again that is an admirable quality and it's a very conservative quality that these institutions that have developed over time you know and something as you know silly honestly as the monarchy right it's a figurehead the english monarchy has no actual power they are the head of state and not the head of the government um they are a symbol that's it they're a, a symbol of unity they don't actually have any power and so you can it's tempting to see that institution and say this is a stupid silly institution who cares about it uh, I'm just instead going to promote my own brand so to speak and yet it's a very conservative uh, impulse and tendency to maintain and preserve preserve those institutions regardless of what you know the our ability to rationalize them uh, that's it, it, that goes all the way back to Burke uh, Edmund Burke of you know in 1700s talking about uh, the uh, protecting and uh, cons conserving institutions regardless of if we can rationalize them being there or not and so uh, that in, in a sense Elizabeth's uh, willingness to sacrifice for the institution of the monarch even if the monarch is a little silly is a little foolish is meaningless is a very conservative impulse and it's one that if uh, American uh, leaders and, and both you know politicians but leaders outside of uh, the government as well if they took that to heart and they begin to see institutions as uh, shaping them and, and, and meaning to form them, not using them as platforms, then Congress would be completely different, the presidency would be completely different, uh, and you know churches would be completely different. If we had ministers, if we had leaders, if we had um, uh, individual Christians uh, worried about what was good for the institution, not necessarily uh, promoting themselves. And so, again, I'm not one that... Uh, wishes the United States had something like the Queen. I don't want a monarch. I, I like the fact that we don't have a monarch here. Uh, I'm glad we won the American Revolution uh, and don't have a monarch now. Um, but nonetheless, uh, th that is an admirable quality that Queen Elizabeth definitely uh, demonstrated uh, more than uh, any leader in, in the last you know hundred or so years. 
Now, moving on to uh, learning loss. So, the National Center for Education Statistics came out with uh, their report card, uh, and this was a, a report card kind of e evaluating the COVID years and the impact that it had on students. And what they found is there was a five-point average decline in reading and a seven-point average decline in math uh, scores. Um, that is the largest average declines since 1990. So they were evaluating uh, age nine students, I believe. So these are people kind of in the heart of still learning how to read and write. Uh, these are, again, basic skills. They're not learning calculus. They're not evaluating students and whether they know calculus. They are evaluating reading and writing, and we have the largest average decline since 1990. Now, this isn't a surprise, or it shouldn't come as a surprise, and it hasn't come as a surprise to anyone who's been following this because when you, uh, you know, shut down schools, you know, again, deservedly so maybe at the beginning, but when you shut down schools for any length of time uh, and uh, or take that school online, students simply don't learn the same. Uh, it's just a true, it's a truism. Uh, it, and um, when, you know, it's, when you don't have students in the class, uh, you're relying on their home environment. So that also uh, has, has a particularly detrimental impact on uh, low-achieving students that already have uh, the odds stacked against them with their home life. And, um, uh, in fact, they were the group hardest hit. They had the largest drop-off in um, average scores. Um, and, again, this isn't a surprise, but it's shocking nonetheless, and it's pretty stunning uh, nonetheless. Uh, and and it's, it, it truly is a reminder that even though uh, kids were not uh, the primary, you know, victims, or um, they weren't the uh, they they weren't hit very hard in terms of uh, sickness with uh, COVID. They were the least vulnerable group in, in actually uh, having uh, adverse effects from COVID. And yet we see that even though physically they were okay and healthy, um, developmentally and, and definitely educationally, uh, they also suffered a ton. Um, and this is a really huge issue. And it's true across the world, so it's not one of those things that, you know, the United States is absolutely going to fall behind because China kept their kids in school. I, I don't believe that. I don't buy that for a second, particularly with, a, you know, COVID policy like China has right now. Um, and I don't really care, honestly, about the whole uh, did Democrats or progressives or Republicans do a better job of opening up schools or um, doing the pandemic, treating the pandemic uh, as they should have. I don't really care about any of that because at the end of the day, uh, it, it happened, right? And the last two years have happened, and we can't go back on that uh, two and a half years. And and we have to address this issue now. So uh, school choice, I'm always going to be a proponent of school choice, uh, allowing students to get out of failing schools. Uh, and uh, if their parents are willing, uh, giving them a voucher, giving them uh, the money that they are already paying, that the government's already paying, and instead of that going to directly to the school that they have to go to, giving that money in the form of a voucher to the student so that the student can then pick the school, and the parent, the family can pick the school, and, and then the money follows the student. Um, this is particularly important in a situation like we have because, uh, you know, no one has ever been through a pandemic like this. No one has ever seen a drop in, in points like in, in scores like this. No one's ever seen, uh, you know, two and a half years of students not going to school or going to a different kind of school. Uh, and so what we need is 
or the reality is that we don't have a solution, okay? No matter what educational expert that you may listen to or hear talk, they don't actually know. They don't know if they've they properly diagnosed the problem and they don't know if they can properly solve the problem because we've never experienced this before. So what that means and what it would be ideal is if we had a system of essentially trial and error but not on a national scale. So what school choice does is it begins to localize uh, a lot of issues. It begins to localize uh, policies and practices that schools do and school districts do. And a lot of this is already done on the local level, but the issue is is there's not a lot of competition on the local level or uh, in, in education at all. And so if one school is doing something great and another school is not, well, it doesn't really matter if you're zoned for the school that's not doing so well. Uh, you have to go to that school regardless. And so if we allowed for school choice, what we'd allow for and incentivize stu uh, schools and school districts to experiment, to see and um, uh, evaluate and do research on what is right, that what is working, look at other school districts and uh, adapt. And with that, they would essentially attract, uh, theoretically, again, we, we would, there's no guarantee, I guess, but, you know, theoretically, they would attract more students, would attract more money and more funding, which then would force other schools to adapt their methods that are clearly working because parents are sending their school, their students there. And so it, it, it allows for the testing and the, um, the knowledge to be distributed across uh, in local bodies. Uh, and so this is, that is going to obviously be vitally important, but also we need to look at practices, right? So what are those specific practices? In terms of reading, um, I am a huge, huge go-to-my-grave proponent of what is um, not sight reading, um, which is what a lot of uh, educational um, uh policy wonks and uh, educational uh, theorists, so to speak, will uh, advocate for, but what is called, what, what is known as phonics, okay? Phonics uh, is the, uh, it is instead of looking at a word, which is, so sight reading is when you look at a word and you basically memorize that word and uh, you, uh, that's how you learn to read. You memorize words. And it's kind of like how we learn how to uh, hear and, and we learn language. We uh, hear a word and we just kind of through uh, observing and through hearing it uh, over and over and over again and maybe certain actions associated with it, we learn words by simply being exposed to them over and over and over again. And we don't break them down, we just memorize them essentially. Well, reading, unfortunately, like language, it isn't like language. And so reading actually requires a different kind of thinking where, and this is what phonics-based uh, education is, is that you are breaking down the words on the page into sounds. And so uh, if you've ever heard a teacher talk about, you know, what's this word? And they say, you know, sound it out. Okay, that is basically a phonics-based reading. And, and uh, um, that has been proven time and time again to be the most successful way to teach how to read. Uh, and so if we're going to have a massive reading loss, as we've had, uh, then we need to not just focus on policy and school choice. We need to focus on what's actually the effective policies to put in place. And demanding phonics reading is absolutely one of those. Because once you learn, learn, know how to read, you can do math. Um, you can learn math uh, once you can know how to read. So reading is going to be the most vital thing in, uh, in making schools adopt and making sure that they uh, practice phonics-based reading is one way to do that. And this is also something that Christians should be on the forefront of. Um, one of my favorite times to study is the Middle Ages when the you know, Catholic Church 
while they were doing, you know, a lot of stuff wrong in the Middle Ages, one thing that they did uh, was that they were at the forefront of establishing universities. And they did that because uh, they believed in educating people, educating humans, not just in theology, though that was a prime concern of theirs, was building ministers and people who would go into the clergy. But they uh, adopted and and founded these universities uh, because there was a a firm belief that uh, truth matters and that education was how a human not just discovered what was true, but lived uh, and and oriented their lives around what is true. And that was in the midst of some of the the darkest, most uh, lowest literacy rates in all of human history, and they were at the forefront of educating and and Christians, you know, in this time of a clear learning loss, of clear uh, gaps in education, has the opportunity to, again, take the, fr- uh, the forefront of education, to uh, start schools, to be involved in the education of people because, because we believe that God is ultimate truth and he's a source of all truth, that as students are taught how to pursue truth, that they're actually going to learn more and more about who God is through his created order and hopefully come to know him and live according uh, to his ordinances. Uh, And so because we have this opportunity now, if we find as Christians, if we find the most effective methods and we actually think about what the most effective methods are, we can really be a, a, a true light in a pretty dark place. And moving right along here, um, I want to talk next about the Trump FBI raid. So uh, this has you know, been kind of going on for the last month or so. I haven't really talked at all about it or written about it at all because I, quite frankly, have just been waiting for more information to come out. Because uh, you know, when, fir- when that first news first broke that the FBI had raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, people came out with their speculations and their theories as to why they were doing this. Is this something related to January 6th? Does this you know, mean he's going to be locked up forever, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Uh, is it the FBI just going after Donald Trump? You know, we didn't have any of that information. However, over the course of the last month, I do believe we've gotten more information, and it seems pretty clear that um, the FBI was essentially uh, taking repossession over documents that Trump had that were high-clearance high uh, documents. Um, many of the documents found were top secret, um, and they were not being stored in a secure facility or in a secure way. Um, this has been, you know... Through the different uh, releasings and and uh, briefings that have been released and uh, different uh, judge rulings, uh, this is I think pr- become pretty clear that this is what the, this is not about January sixth, at least not yet. Uh, I doubt it turns into that, but that there were really secret documents at Mar-a-Lago, and Donald Trump is not the president of the United States. He has no right to have those documents. This is a pretty cut and dry uh, case. In, in in my mind. I don't understand, um, you know, it seems like they went through the normal process. It seems like they tried to get the documents um, from Trump uh, by uh, without raiding his Mar-a-Lago estate. It seems like he gave over some documents and then gave over all the documents, and then refused to give over all the documents and said that he'd already given over all that he had. The FBI got apparently clear and convincing evidence that that was not true, and uh, they raided the uh, estate and then found uh, insecure, secure documents that were not supposed to be there. Um, this, again, is pretty cut and, cut and dry in my case. Uh, I, I don't get this idea that... Um, Trump is off limits. Uh, that the the FBI he can he can basically do whatever he wants. The idea that he just declared a blanket uh, declassification of everything he brought to Mar-a-Lago is, first of all, it's 
there's no nobody who has worked in the administration has been able to prove that that was a standing order. Number one, number two, even if he had done that, even if he had said everything that I take to Mar-a-Lago with me, and you know want to read in bed and not in the secure facility that's in Mar-a-Lago, everything that I do that with is declassified. Is nuts okay if that even if that's true okay even if he did that that means that if he's reading you know important nuclear information in bed that is now declassified because he wanted to read it in bed so that's absolutely absurd even if that's true which again there's been no evidence that he actually did anything like that um so i don't get this uh, this like gut reaction to uh defend him I, I i don't and and before people are like well what about hillary clinton yeah she also mishandled top secret uh, information and developed and uh created her own server and did things she wasn't supposed to do and yeah she got off scotch free and i didn't think she should have just like i don't think trump should if he did something like this this is this is not something like um we're trying to find him on something we're trying we don't like him so we're investigating him and trying to catch him on something this seems a pretty big deal okay like it's one thing if he if you're just like stretching to pull together an invest a January 6th investigation and you're trying to arrest him on collusion and, and all that okay I hated January 6th and and I think I made that clear but if you're gonna like reach just to punish and arrest Donald Trump I don't think that's right but top secret documents is a really big deal as national security I give me national security over the security of Donald Trump any day of the week and I don't get this argument I haven't gotten this argument for a while that an attack on Donald Trump is an attack on all those who supported Donald Trump like I've heard people in response to this FBI raid saying um, you know this is this is an attack on all Trump supporters the FBI is now turned on all Trump supporters no he is the, the FBI is is doing their duty in getting documents from Donald Trump that has nothing to do with Donald Trump's supporters. Donald Trump is not the figurehead or the spokesperson or the representative to his supporters. They may have voted for him. They may still defend the guy. They may still like the guy. But, uh, you know, criticizing Donald Trump is not me criticizing those who voted for him. It's me criticizing Donald Trump. The FBI, the FBI, you know, going and into Mar-a-Lago and taking what was not too, supposed to belong to Donald Trump is not an attack on Trump supporters. It is doing their duty and uh, getting what they need from Donald Trump uh, and, and enforcing the law against Donald Trump, who is now a private citizen. It has nothing to do with uh, Trump supporters, and to see it as an attack on you if you are a Trump supporter is, in my mind, uh, foolish. Uh, and so, uh, as this continues to develop, unless the, you know really corrupt information and documents come out from the FBI, I just am inclined to say, yeah, this is pretty bad, and Donald Trump shouldn't have done this, and he should be, you know, prosecuted if he if that's appropriate. Um, I'm not interested in the what about Hillary Clinton. She should have been prosecuted too. This is even again, even if this uh, his defenses were true, it is you know disqualifying from office. But um, uh, that's just the same old story with Donald Trump. And finally, I will end in Chile. So a couple of months ago, I talked about Chile and the potential of adopting a new constitution. Uh, well, that constitution was voted on, and 62% rejected the new constitution. So the new constitution, as a reminder, was essentially a progressive wish list of all sorts of uh, progressive policies. Uh, the constitution would grant uh, indigenous groups autonomy over ancestral lands and allow them, allow them to create their own justice systems. 
Uh, mining companies will base would basically have been given a new legal status of more uncertainty. Uh, the new constitution would have required the same number of men and women in every public agency. Abortion would have been legal, and then nature would have been granted the right to be protected. Um, so again, just a wish list of progressive policies, um, and the attempt to rewrite the constitution and adopt this new one was. Uh, justified by the constitution that Chile is currently under was written essentially under a dictator in the 1980s, and so they see it as illegitimate, and this is a way to pass a new legitimate constitution. I think this is a wonderful thing for the people of Chile that this was rejected by, you know, a pretty substantial margin. Uh, you know, mining companies in Chile were already getting hurt. Uh, um, the investments were drying up because they, of this uncertainty. This would have been terrible economics. This would have been terrible for the legal system. It would have added complexity stage of the legal system um, and wouldn't have been effective in my opinion um, but again uh, that's why I'm a conservative and don't pr promote a lot of these progressive policies so uh, good for the people of Chile uh, and I think they're going to continue working on a new constitution um, hopefully and obviously it'll have to be a little bit more moderate than this but uh, this is a wonderful development for the people of Chile and hopefully that means that uh, economic investment will return to a lot of that mining industry uh, and that they can uh, get a legal system, a, a functioning uh, government that is seen as legitimate and is seen uh, and is uh, equipped and uh, formatted and formed to help the prosperity uh, and freedom of the people of Chile. And with that, that is the podcast this week. So thank you for listening. I hope that you like, subscribe, share, do whatever you can to make this podcast go far and wide. And I hope that you will join again next week.